Welcome to Transition, the podcast featuring farmers who are seeking a more sustainable future for their farm business. In this series, we're examining farming methods which are profitable, but which also protect and enhance the environment. From Farmers Weekly, I'm Johan Tasker. Today, we're visiting Scottish cereal and root crop grower Alan Stephen, who farms 138 hectares at King's Barns near St Andrews in Fife. Alan says he faces three main challenges, improving soil health, the double-edged sword of a mild Scottish coastal climate and distance to market. During a busy harvest, we hitched a ride with Alan as he was combining a crop of malting barley and I started by asking him how his family came to farm where they are today. Um, the story is a long story. Um, my probably great granny would come from the west like most east of five farmers would come from the west from being dairy farmers came through in 1900 to a tenant and farm as a dairy unit um, this started up dairying retailing milk they'd work away through the wars doing that and obviously my grandfather was a sort of instigator moving things on and then they bought the first kind of farm in 1950-something, Bailey Farm up at Danino, and then we bought this farm in 1960, and then my oh, grandfather bought another farm in 66 for an uncle in Arbroath, and that's how we've sort of moved on, and obviously we gave up the tenancy, of, stopped dairying in 1966, and then they gave up the tenancy in, I think, about 1977. And today, what are the main crops here? Uh, main crops are seed potatoes, Brussels sprouts, parsnips, uh, then malt and barley, seed wheat, and oats for the porridge oat factory. So a mixture of cereals and field-scale veg then, really? Yeah. And what are you trying to achieve as a business? What's your sort of farming philosophy, as it were? We're always trying to grow kind of premium branded crops and grow for this sort of high value market. And obviously, main things make a return on what we're doing and look after the land for the next generation. And we're in a crop of uh, spring barley now. Tell me about this crop. This is a crop of uh, Firefox, molten barley after Brussels sprouts. Hopefully it makes the nitrogen grade. We used to struggle to get molten barley after our sprouts, but the sort of modern varieties of barley seem to yield better. And we have not had a field, field make molten now for probably about 10 years. We stopped growing molten barley at one point after sprouts and went on to growing seed crops. Uh, but it was always a storage point that we we kind of gave up on this seed barley uh, job of uh, needing to build more sheds to store grains. So, and then the modern variety of barley, we seem to have managed to hit the molten grade again. So we've been back just growing everything for malt. So the area is good for malting barley, and that's what you try to do. You're going for you're going for quality rather than quantity. Yeah, well, the only thing is now with the modern varieties, we're actually getting quantity too. Uh, but obviously main things are quality and obviously for our point of view it saves storage if we can make molten grade you can 
get away off the farm, hopefully within sort of three weeks to a month they're being cut, so we, we don't have storage. It's known for having a mild climate, I guess, East Fife, but that's not without its challenges, is it? No, I mean, it's, it's everybody with mild climate, but that's when the wind's prevailing from the west. When we get the wind out the east, we're in a different climate, which is what we've happened kind of last few springs. I mean, this year, we're probably more frost we saw in April than we've seen for years, which held all the crops back for a wee while. Climate seems to run in cycles, I think, a wee bit. Everybody's going, oh, it's climate change. But, I mean, springs in the 80s were so wet. I mean, we were, you know, back then we were growing Golden Promise Spring Marley. And, and you would struggle to get, you know, your spring barley in sometimes till April. And I've seen this, well, one of the first years I came home, it was May till we were planting potatoes because it was such a wet spring. We were, it was month in the shed because we couldn't work anything and then there you go, oh, it'll just go through in cycles, whereas when we were at school, our average rainfall was 24, 25 inches locally, where I don't think we've hit anything less than probably 27, 28 inches in the last few years of rainfall, yet we still seem to be dry. So with this crop then, talk me through it, how was it established and what sort of management programme did you have on it? This is quite traditionally established because we're Brussels sprouts, there's quite a high residue and we just get on and plough and then sow with a one pass system straight in behind the plough uh, to conserve as much moisture and then rolled, uh, we use liquid fertiliser, so I'm straight in with a liquid fertiliser on after it's sown and rolled and then put the P and K on too with a manure spreader and then uh, we try to have a wee bit problem with annual merigrass, so we've been trying to do residue post or pre-emergence uh, residue spray for annual meadowgrass Always sometimes we seem to go running in a dry spell the last couple of years, so we've always wondered whether it's worked, but it's certainly clean weed-wise, the field. Um, and then it's just had its usual, we're still probably on two fungicides, we're maybe needing to look at the, some of the fungicides, but we rely on the maltster, they do the agronomy on the crop, so we're quite happy they know they're spending then, so uh, we're in a good position. So the tractor and trailers come alongside, what sort of yield are you getting off this field? This field, we're running about, this, uh, hopefully about the 8 to 9 tonne hectare. We're bits of, it's obviously the dry bits down the bottom of the field are probably about the 6 to 7 tonne hectare. Um, well, hopefully, I think we should average a good eight overall our acreage of spring barley this year until it's all away you don't know I mean the combine's not it's got a yield monitor on it but it's never been calibrated yield tested so we're just go by the sort of figures slightly under so hopefully we're slightly over what we sell. But not a bad year then all in all? Yeah no I mean it's it's for been the year it's been anyway, it's, you wouldn't say it's a perfect growing season, 
could have done with a bit more rain in June, end of June time. I just got rain at the right time, just as the sort of barley was heading uh, to keep it going. And then we've had the odd bee showers because it was the same. We were irrigating our potatoes and veg at that time, and then we kind of stopped irrigating for about a month uh, because there were enough moisture. This is the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast with me, Johan Tasker. Hi, I'm Max Daffon, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can make your transition to a more sustainable future easier with Bayer's digital farming tool, FieldView. You'll get access to the last five years' worth of historic satellite imagery through the FieldView platform, which when combined with farm-generated data, will help you make more informed decisions about future field management. FieldView's easy-to-understand visual display makes it simple to compare the impact of the changes you make, like adjusting fertiliser applications according to crop requirements, or testing different seed rates and crop protection programmes. And the data you collect will also help you identify unproductive land which you could take out of production and put into agri-environmental schemes. To find out more about FieldView and how it could help you move to a more productive, profitable and sustainable future, search Bayer FieldView online or get in touch with me via the Bayer website. You are listening to the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast. I'm Johan Tasker. We're visiting Scottish cereal and root crop grower Alan Stephen, who is combining a crop of malting barley at King's Barns near St Andrews in Fife. I asked Alan where his malting barley goes. It's only actually going about 20 miles at the moment, but it's because we're, the maltsters have storage at Dundee. But they've obviously got a good supply train set up so that it's a maltster in Berwick, Simpsons Malts but when they take their malt north their lorries then come back down with at this time of year the malt, their lorries will be coming back into Dundee they'll be picking up malt and barley in Aberdeenshire and they'll be bringing barley back into Dundee and then later on in the season they pick the barley back up from Dundee as they're heading down the road and then they're obviously you know it's basically three hours or so down to Berwick for the malt barley but that's the way the supply chain works now but I mean when we used to when I started all our malt barley went to Kirkcaldy for a maltsters there but it shut 20-25 years ago so you do like to grow quality crops for local markets, cut down on the track, reduce the ca- yeah. transport, minimise the transport costs, that kind of thing. It's a sensible thing to do, you know, trying to, trying to go in your market, you know, you you would get penalised for haulage anywhere else, you know, there, there is markets locally, I mean, obviously the, there's not maltsters locally anymore, apart from some, there's a few niche ones right enough now, I mean, we've got a malt distillery along the road for gin and whiskey, but it's still buying its malt from our Simpsons Malt, a new distillery just the other side of King's Barns, but it's still getting its malt from uh, Simpsons Malts. So this will ultimately end up as what, do you know? Some it goes to McCallum's, certain varieties, some goes to Diageo, so it just depends on where they are. specifically which maltsters they'll supply various maltsters Simpsons malts but most it's all going for the whiskey production up north 
Alan, uh, one of the challenges you face is uh, soil health and how to improve it and how to ensure it's in uh, top quality condition. What are you doing to look after it? Well, the big thing is obviously, as you can see here, we're chopping straw. We've been chopping straw now for probably 30 years. Um, well, obviously, part of the reason for that is that there is a good demand for straw, but the way the fertilizer market's going at the moment, it means you're selling your potash down the road. So that's why we're, we're not keen on selling the straw. And the other reason we're not keen on selling the straw is the compaction from the straw getting removed from the field at the time your loaders trailers, balers, and obviously the men that come to clear the straw always tend to do on the wet days when they can't be combining, which is more compaction. We spend a lot of money on combines got oversized tyres on it. Um, we've got oversized tyres for the tractor for sewing. We've got another oversized set of tyres waiting on rims at the moment through a government initiative on to reduce soil compaction. We try to spend as little time on the fields when those conditions are not right. Is that um, is that something that's unusual for farms in this area? I mean, coming here today, there's a lot of straw being baled. Yeah, I mean, like a, well, our neighbours are very big livestock farms, so they're baling everything. But uh, a lot of the uh, neighbourhood, the boys that are looking after their land, are chopping their straw. Um, obviously, if you're putting it through your own cattle well you're you're benefiting your ground too but there's no point in selling straw for the sake of selling straw thinking you're making money if you're if you're not putting something back i mean we used to spread a lot of hen pen on our ground years ago in front of the veg but obviously the supermarkets are not really looking for that sort of route now anymore but also part of the reason we've kind of stopped it too is we always seem to be relying on contractors and contractors always turned up on the day when it rained afterwards and you, again you're looking at all these big machines and compaction so we sometimes didn't think we got the same benefit uh, from the applications. Keeping it on the farm then has its advantages. What sort of soil type is it? Well this field ranges obviously the bottom end of it is very much parsnip ground whereas it gets heavier as we go on up the field. I mean, we're, we'll have a wee bit grade one on the farm. Majority is probably grade two, and then you're obviously some of it's into grade three. You know, there's well, not all of our farm we can grow parsnips on. Some of it's more able ground, so you, but it suits. But we've learned, you know, you keep off the ground and you'll look after it. So maybe creating ourselves a bit more work in the springtime because the last few years we haven't been doing any winter ploughing because it's been too wet and we leave everything to plough when we're ready to sow when the ground's fit to be travelling on and we're probably getting better yields from doing that but we're obviously having more work in the springtime you're sitting twiddling your thumbs in the, through the winter but there's, if it's too wet to plough there's no point in being out there to plough just for the sake of ploughing in terms of soil structure and that kind of thing, it's fairly okay. Do you measure the, the, the soil uh, organic matter content at all? Yeah, we do. We're, but the one thing is, we've seen there can be quite a variation in everybody that measures. You know, you can get a variation. But yeah, it's part of our. Obviously, we're a leaf grower and red tractor, so you have to be measuring all these things uh, for the protocols going forward. I mean, one of the times this field was 
sampled, the chap come back to resample because he says there's a huge variation in the age of the soil from the top of the field to the bottom of the field. He says, you know, likes a thousand years. So you wouldn't have thought that then. I mean, it's not exactly, it, it, it's an undulating field, but it's not, it, it's not a really steep one, is it? Yeah, well, when the farm was bought in 1960, this field and the one opposite wasn't with it. This field was a caravan park then, and there was a big stately home originally, but it was latterly a hotel. So this was all caravan park, and then, well, there's pictures of it in the war. There's obviously bomb craters and that because there was a big airfield, sort of a mile that way, and they had fake lights down on this farm near the sea to obviously decoys for the German bombers coming in about, and then a bit. There's another arm airfield, sort of four miles to Crail, and then there's obviously lookers at St Andrews was an air base, and then there was another air base near another farm, sort of four miles inland. So, you know, there's a lot of activity in the war. And how do you manage that variability then in, in soil? We're just trying to learn to work the soil less. Uh, in an ideal way, obviously, in the past you would plough and leave the frost mould, but as I say, we haven't seen any frost for a lot of years. So we're trying to learn to plough it, you know, and in some ways we would like to have a deep time cultivator called a sumo trio and we'd like to, we'll try and use it a few times in the rotation too and not plough all the time. But of course it's just getting the right seed bed. Um, obviously we'd like to invest more in a sort of a direct or a mintil type drill but uh, we're still in the early days and haven't seen the right one yet. Um, I had a couple of demos, but we're still needing to look. And the biggest thing I can see is trying to deal with this chopped straw and being able to sow. And uh, we're combining here, and you think, oh, it's reasonable to combine, but it's not chopping the straw very well because we're very coastal and, well, not damp, but it's gumminess. Raw. And a huge amount of chopped straw there. So in terms of soil, you're moving it less, uh, you're also using cover crops? Yeah, we've tried wee bits of cover crops, still haven't found quite the right mixture this year. We're down to just really oats and phacelia and a wee bit buckwheat. We haven't got it all sown yet, we've got a couple of fields sown. We've tried radishes, types of radish in, on the past, which would been in this field a few, maybe five, six years ago, but the only problem was we obviously didn't feel we'd let it go to seed, but we seem to have a lot of volunteer seeds uh, on the farm. We had to walk through and pull radish out of uh, Brussels sprouts last year in this field. Um, so we're just playing around on the mixtures. Um, when I spoke to the seeds boys, a lot of the mixtures are not doing enough because you're now sort of September and, well, we're September and dry, so it's not the perfect growing conditions for little seeds. But we'll try and work away. We've got another sort of 15 hectares to sow, which hopefully will get on and get it sown at the weekend once we f f get finished combining today. And we'll get the rest of the cover crop sown, do wee bits of catches of grass and times as well but obviously some it's we're doing it for EFA 
because we're all quite good ground, we don't think, justify having land out of production just purely for greening. So we do the kind of EFA 5% mix on the land. Establish because you're getting, you're getting double edge, you're getting your EFA and you're doing your cover crop. And part of doing the cover crops too is the fields that are going to veg or potatoes. We can then leave them right through till sort of March, even into April, with crop growing in them rather than them just being bare stubble all winter. So we think we're slightly benefiting. Keeping the ground covered as much as possible then? Yeah. It's just it's, it's a learning thing. It's, we're trying to learn about them and obviously my, our big thing is we don't want a cover crop that's going to increase a pest. We don't we'll have a wee bit problem with sort of free-living nematodes on the ground with parsnips so we don't want something that's going to encourage that. We don't want something that's going to build the numbers of slugs. Slugs are a big problem in our sprouts so we don't want a cover crop that's going to do that. This is the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast with me, Johan Tasker. Hello, my name's Scott Garnett from ICL Fertilisers. I'm Head of Agronomy for UK and Ireland. Over the last few years, we've been doing research applying polysulfate in the autumn. Our data is showing that we've improved nitrogen uptake by about 28% and phosphate uptake by about 40%. We understand that farming in the UK and Ireland is under a lot of pressure to improve nutrient use efficiency. You can find more information about this at polysulfate.com. This is the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast with me, Johan Tasker. I'm with Scottish grower Alan Stephen, who's combining a crop of malting barley. And while he was doing so, I asked him about the farm's machinery management strategy. We don't really have probably that good a replacement policy. It's obviously... It's like everything else, if the machine's reliable and running well and not costing a lot to run, we'll keep it running. This will be the combine's uh, 13th year, but we're not a big acreage, so it's not stretched the combine, but this will be its first year that it's actually cut all our own acreage itself. The last few years we've normally had maybe a demo or I think last year we ended up two demo combines one year before or the cousin didn't help him because the weather was going to break so he came and helped us and but you know and it's the same with the tractors policy the tractors are all getting dearer we've got two tractors at 8,000 hours now or 8,000 plus but not thinking of changing either of them because they've been quite reliable like to buy probably another good second hand tractor at the moment because the new market is so dear and so uh, struggling to supply. I mean if you wanted a, a new tractor I think you'd be ordering now for maybe June next year and because of the, 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 that way in the market there's no really competitive terms on the market you know the tractors have jumped so much in price I mean I'm speaking to a neighbour today you know and your list price delivery on your fin was 260,000 for a 300 horsepower tractor well that doesn't correspond to grain prices 
you know, we'll try to look after our machinery so we can keep them. Um, we've been looking at changing our potato harvester at the moment because again, unfortunately, it's actually older than the combine. It's probably done more work in the combine, so we're trying to look at a good second-hand one on that side of thing. But I still think they're wanting too much money for something that's three, four year old compared with basically what ours is worth, which is virtually nothing. And what sort of um, what, what sort of what potato harvester is it? It's a trailed Grimmy GT seventeen hundred harvester, just a single multi set. But you know, it's still doing the job. But obviously, you, it's ongoing. So you think, oh, we need to upgrade it at some point. But as I say, it's probably not depreciating much in the grand scale of things at the moment. But we'll just. You keep your eye on the market, keep an eye on things. I mean, at the moment, in some ways, we're probably needing to spend this on a shed, but the way the price of steel was this year, the shed thing's never going to happen. So, you know, with various prices on sheds, but it says, well, we can only hold them for a week. And that shed was for, well, that was, that was grain storage? A bit more grain storage and machinery shed, machinery storage, you know, we're. By the time we get to the end of the harvest and the potatoes are all in, we're struggling to get all the bits of machinery in the shed. And I mean, well, it's the same, the price of fertilizer's going up. I mean, normally I don't buy fertilizer till sort of November, December time for sort of January in the shed. But this is all, it's going up, going up. So I mean, I've two loads of fertilizer booked for October delivery. Well, it may be a tarpaulin outside yet. And the combine and the tractors are all John Deere, yeah? Yeah, we've just level of service. You know, it's like a lot of folk go, oh, do you want this, do you want that? Well, we get we get good service. Um, but no, it comes down to we get good service where we are. Some folk will say they're not the cheapest, but um, I wouldn't complain on what I get from them. I've had some poor service from other dealers in the past and you don't go back too quick. So the combine then, what, what combine is it? It's a T560 Hillmaster, it was bought as a ex-demonstrator combine. Um, I actually sold, I had an axle full before and I I'd got kind of a wee bit fed up with it and its service and I got to the end of harvest one year and took picture and put it in the Farmers Weekly and I had a bit more on the combine and it went away to France uh, so I was kind of committed that I needed to buy something else so and it just so happened that a local dealer had this demonstrator combine which was pretty much full spec and other than obviously I then once I'd bought the combine a couple of years later when I was buying a fertilizer spreader I actually bought the screen to run the fertilizer spreader and a GPS system, which also means I can run an auto steer the combine and yield monitor on the combine. And it obviously goes between the machines on the farm. That's the advantage of obviously the John Deere's is working. The GPS systems can jump between the machinery. And the header on it, what sort of width is it? It's a 20 foot header. Obviously the next generation ones they say you can run wider header but it's good enough for what I need. Um, 
I would like to see a demonstration of more a flexi type draper header but they don't start them really until they're 25 foot headers and I uh, haven't seen one in action yet. The last thing I like to see is going over flat bits of crop but not being able to keep it to the level of the ground. So. So it does the job then, how many acres does it cut a year? It'll be cutting just about the 400 acres, which is not a lot for a combine, but of course we're Scottish conditions, so, and obviously we're trying to do other jobs too, so you're, you don't want, I mean I started out cutting a similar acreage with a Dominator 86 combine, and the, but of course I didn't do as many other jobs, so you plenty of time to sit in the combine. So you take advantage of technology where it makes the job easier, but you, you don't sort of buy tech for tech's sake? No, we're not just, you know, part of the reason I went in the GPS was you can concentrate on other things in your job, you know, it's like obviously combine, it's also your office, so you can be answering emails and dealing with other things while you're combining but still being able to concentrate on what the combine's doing but you're not actually wondering whether you're missing bits or these sort of things and it's the same argument when you're sowing with a cedar you know folk used to say oh you don't need it and I'm going yeah but if I'm got something doing the so steering for me I can then concentrate on the seed bed and the depth of seeds are, so you know you're making the job 100%. Whereas some folk think, oh, I can concentrate, I can drive straight. But if you're driving straight, you're not actually watching it, what the machine's doing. And it's the same with everything else, you know, with learning and the potatoes and the veg, the accuracy of the row planting is critical for your end quality, your end yield. And it's the same thing, it gives you great flexibility for. You know, if you weather, you know, like so for planting veg, we can suddenly jump and start planting in a point or something like that, or planting a lighter bit of the field. You don't have to start off the straight wall because you've got the GPS. You can start where you want to start, or you can jump. You know, if you've got different varieties, same in the sort of planting the potatoes and that. You know, you can you start in the points and get the points planted first, and then the man can then work the end rig up. This is the Farmer's Weekly Transition Podcast with me, Johan Tasker. Farming is undergoing a huge change and no one's really sure what the future holds other than we need to build resilience and profitability into our farming practices. Earning up to £800 a hectare from your less productive land is an option with Miscanthus. The contracts are up to 15 years in fixed price, offering that extra security and one less unknown. You can have a crop that improves soil and water health whilst providing habitat and shelter for animals, increasing your organic matter and actually assisting food production by allowing you to concentrate on the more productive land. The biomass that grows every year is used to produce carbon neutral electricity, while the incredible rhizome network underground is carbon negative, drawing on average 2.35 tonnes of CO2 per hectare per year. You can now plant 30 hectares for roughly £1,600 in year one, Thanks to our amazing partners at Oxbury, the Agricultural Bank. Start growing innovation. Visit terravesta.com. This is the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast. We're talking to Scottish grower Alan Stephen. And I continued the conversation by asking him about environmental stewardship. 
We did a stewardship with the Scottish Government about 15 years ago and we planted a few hedges and did a few other jobs for them but when it came round after the five years to do another scheme there wasn't enough for us to do and so we haven't sort of done any more of that but we're basically we're sticking in with it we get free seed from RSPB through a uh, sponsorship deal it was M&S but I'm not sure who sponsors RSPB for the seed at the moment so we're doing work for the corn buntings and we're going to need to carry on doing that because obviously we're a leaf grower so of course they're now wanting bird surveys and insect counts so it's an advantage because we've got in with RSPB they're already sending somebody to do the survey so it saves us time wise and the lady who was doing the bird survey actually did an insect count for me as well there this year so that's another box tick for leaf and I can see obviously the way that uh, all the schemes are going to go you know our basic farming is going to be around some sort of scheme and we just obviously didn't want to overdo too much in case you have to find something to do in a scheme it's like we looked at planting trees a few years ago but they, they wanted an acreage planted whereas I was only just needing to fill in some gaps. So Alan you're a leaf grower, what does uh, that mean for you? It's just obviously it helps our sales but you know we've been in or Tesco's Assured Produce um, it was used to be M&S Field for Fork and of course now they're all just going down you know, onto leaf, and I hear even the, our local oak group are now probably looking to try and get their oak growers to become leaf members. So it's just carrying on. I mean, do you see it as giving you a competitive advantage then, or is it something that you have to do to be able to market your crops? Yeah, it's probably still giving us a competitive advantage. Obviously, we we need to do it to market our crops now. You know, you you wouldn't get you know, certain crops to grow if you weren't and in some ways it, it it ticks other boxes it keeps other things away from you that you don't, you know, some people would maybe want you to do other things but they're needing a wee bit more joined up in all these schemes that, you know, there's a wee bit too much overlap and some things and there's just, you know there's too much records getting kept, we seem to spend too much time in the office nowadays but of course it's the bits of bit time in the office that actually balances everything out and makes sure everything based. But in terms of that, how do you market your crops? I mean, is it, do you have a, a strategy or...? Yeah, I mean, most of it's an ongoing strategy. You, you know, you've done things before, but you don't just keep doing it because you've done it before. You know, they've got to, you know, they've got to know that we're making money at what we're doing, you know. We've, got to be seen good profit for all the hoops we jump so we've got to you know because again everything we do is actually still so reliant on the weather you know we, we grow, grow premium crops but you're reliant on the weather you know a couple of years we've had you know last year we lost a couple of acres of sprouts in this field but it's because uh, heavy rain in September pushed them over a wee bit and then the frost in sort of early January finished them they just couldn't couldn't stand it, you know, and they weren't obviously first quality crop, so they were just left. How do you manage risk in your business? 
just because we've got obviously a spread of crops that is managing the risk you know you've got you know a wee bit of everything you know you've most of it you try to have a certain proportionate contracted so you know that you're covering all your costs and making a margin Do you use buying groups, farm cooperatives, that kind of thing? Yeah, a little bit. We're a member of the machinery rings. We've obviously uh, we've tried to join certain groups. Um, the only thing is they've run your farm deals online, but none of their, not many of their deals actually likes on the fuel thing. There's no fuel up in, in our neighbourhood yet. Uh, it's the same with some of our local fuel suppliers. They don't like to work with the machinery ring. They want to still work with certain farmers. I mean, we had this years ago with one of the first machinery rings and we says, look, to the local fuel supplier, why can you not just supply it to us? It's the same thing. So some, some merchants don't like to work through groups. Some do, you know. Do you cooperate with, uh, with neighbours at all, or very much the sort of family-based outfit? No, I mean obviously I do, I do a contract spraying operation for a neighbour, uh, so I spraying his potatoes. We try and help out. I mean, my brother's been helping the same neighbour lift potatoes because his new harvester was late and been delivered. So, and then we're. Uh, I planted potatoes for another neighbour this spring. We're busy supplying irrigation water to another neighbour because we do a, we're putting a pipeline through one of our neighbours because we obviously have the burn and we supply them water uh, when they need it. And you obviously you learn to get along with your folk near at hand because again you, you can save some cost. This is the Farmer's Weekly Transition Podcast with me, Johan Tasker. Lost in the funding options beyond BPS? Wondering how you can reduce your carbon footprint? Can trees benefit you? Till Hill can show you that by planting the right tree in the right place, you, your family and generations to come can continue to farm with the benefit of trees and the right time to plant trees is now. Trees can bring you a better income on those areas of your farm that just won't give you the very best harvest or feed for your livestock. Between Woodland Carbon and the New England Woodland Creation Offer, the financial reward has never been so great. Whether you farm for beef, dairy, sheep or arable, trees can offer multiple benefits that complement your business. Visit tillhill.com to find out more. Tillhill, the forestry professionals guiding farmers to their sustainable future. This is the Farmers Weekly Transition podcast with me, Johan Tasker, talking to Scottish grower Alan Stephen. We've talked about the past, we've talked about the present, but what about the future? What are Alan's plans for his farm business? Obviously, the plan's always to keep the business going, you know, obviously I've got a 14-year-old son and obviously I'm not forcing him to home, come home, but I hope there's something for him to come home for, you know, I'm trying to encourage him at the moment to actually maybe go away and get, a, I'd like him to get some sort of electrical engineering degree type thing, but obviously, you know, technology is going to move on that to being able to look after things will get harder but if you've got the sort of savvy I mean we grew up with 
you know, our own toolboxes and learn to fix things, but of course so much of machinery is getting, you know, kind of beyond. You need a computer connection before you can get a lot of the connections done. So, you know, we want the business we're only here to look after at short term. We want the, it, the land to keep going. Um, we're just seeing where it's going to go. How did you get into farming yourself? Did you act college and work abroad and then come home, or? No, well, just just did ag college. I didn't. Uh, the ironic thing was, would just before I came home, we'd bought another farm, so we'd plenty of land uh, and work. And then our older sort of members of staff were all actually getting older and less able. So of course there was no lackage of work for when we came home. In some ways I always missed that it should have gone away. I always hankered to go somewhere else in the world and drive a combine and being part of a combine gang and all the rest. But, you know, there was just plenty of work for us at home. Um, both cousins went off to college and then went and did practicals, which is probably the, the right thing to do. I mean, my brother and I, we actually only went to the local agricultural college at Cooper and we were doing it as a day release. But I mean, it still went on to, you know, OND and agriculture. And, but of course, now I wish you'd sort of probably done a wee bit more in the computers. Computers were just coming along. I started doing computer courses at evening classes and did a wee bit of bookkeeping courses, but obviously should have done more of that, you know, at the time the problem with all doing all these courses unless you actually go in and do the, the practical follow-up, you probably lose what you learn too quick So you won't be buying your 14-year-old son a farm then, so you can <laughs> Well, that's a scary problem you know, we'd always hope you could buy more land, and I mean the neighbouring farm was on the market about five years ago, but I mean there was no we we could compete, you know, it was a kind of, not a developer, I mean, this guy still bought the farm, a farmer, but I mean, he, there was there was two developments on the farmer's mill and an old run-down stead, and he bought the stead and obviously developed it in a wedding venue, which was great, because, I mean, the building's still standing, but, you know, it wasn't valued, you know, the, the value of the land was all in the development, you know, you couldn't have borrowed the money to buy the land and paid it back and made money. But for somebody to start out, it'll not be easy. But obviously, if you want to work, there's plenty of opportunities to work and work on the land. So what's the best thing about the job then, all in all? Doing this, outside, harvesting what you've grown, you know, it's always a great thing, feeling you've produced a premium crop. You know, you've done your best. That's Scottish cereal and vegetable grower Alan Stephen talking to me, Johan Tasker, for the Farmers Weekly Transition podcast. You can find out more about Alan and the Farmers Weekly Transition project by visiting us at www.fwi.co.uk slash transition. The website there contains lots of ideas about farming in a way that is profitable, but also good for the environment. We'll be visiting another transition farmer soon as they seek to secure a more sustainable future for their farm business. Until then, from the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast, I'm Johan Tasker. Thank you for listening.